Um, last week, we're, we're in the end of chapter six here. Chapter six has been, you know, four or five weeks of going through this just because of how much stuff there is in John chapter six. And last week, we saw that um, Jesus made some really big promises. I, I call them campaign promises, uh, where he's uh, making these huge promises that he's going to raise up every single person that his father gives him. He's not going to lose anybody. Uh, everyone's going to be raised up that, that the father gives him. He's not going to have anyone pried out of his hands. And he makes these big promises, but yet despite these promises, as we're going to see today, these glorious promises, these incredible, beautiful promises, something in the hearts of men, something in our own hearts makes it so difficult for us to truly actually follow Jesus. You know, we'll, we'll think in our heads, I know that God offers eternal life. I know that he's made these promises. I know that. But yet, somehow, we still choose to go our own way, to maybe continue in sin or to not make necessary changes in our lives, to believe the false and empty promises that other things offer us, that other things in the world give to us. And today we're going to be looking at a very sobering reality that many people, even people who profess to be Christians, as they're called here in the story, disciples, many disciples turn away from Jesus. Not just people who blatantly reject non-believers, atheists who just say, no, 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 thank you, but actual disciples, people who profess to be Jesus followers that call themselves Christians. Sometimes, sometimes it's a blatant rejection in their life, but sometimes it's just maybe a rejection in, a, in their lifestyle or a certain aspect of their lifestyle. Jesus has not been invited into their everyday life. He's not the center of life or the thing that maybe we, we cling to the most. And for many, sometimes the demands are just too much and there's other things that maybe take priority. It's your favorite TV shows you like to binge watch or maybe it's hobbies or too much time on social media or maybe it's being with your friends, being with family Maybe it's making money, it's working hard, and a lot of these things aren't necessarily bad, but they take the place and they take priority over this, this man who's made these incredible promises to us. So I hope that today we receive a bit of a, maybe a wake-up call, a gut check that helps us to truly examine our devotion to Jesus. So let me pray now and um, thank the Lord for all of his grace towards us, that he gives us his word, that we can know him, that we aren't left in the dark. And thank him for the grace that he gives us and ask him to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts today, maybe to shine some light in a part of our hearts that has been darkened or blinded, maybe by some of these idolatries. Lord, we thank you for this new day. The Lord's Day that we get to gather together as a church family, giving you thanks, giving you praise for all that you've done for us. And God, you have sent your son to make these big promises to us, promises that he can back up, even as we just sang, 
His blood never loses power. This is why these, these guarantees are so sure. This is why we can bank on this. Because his blood doesn't lose power. His promises don't break. And your will is that he would not lose a single one given to him. And so we thank you for that. And now this morning we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would help us to examine our hearts, examine areas of our life that are blinded by sin, blinded by idolatry. That we would see those things and we would run from them, turn from them, and in faith turn to you. In our weakness, in our brokenness, we would turn to you. We ask that you would do this for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 6, verse 59 is where we're going to be starting and we'll be going to the end of the chapter today. So Jesus said all these things, made all these promises in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now when many of his disciples heard it, many of his disciples heard it, they said this, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Well, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Remember, he had just said, I, I came from heaven, I'm the bread that comes from heaven, and now they're getting offended at this. He's saying, you have to feast on me, I'm the bread that comes from heaven, and they're grumbling. Like, well, who is this? We know this guy, this guy is from Nazareth. And he says, well, what would you say if you saw me ascend to heaven? You're not believing me as I'm saying I come from heaven. What would you say if you saw me ascend to heaven? What would you say then? He says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those, uh, who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Later on in this chapter, John specifically mentions Judas, calling him even a devil. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We'll stop there for now. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So here Jesus speaking in the synagogue and with these kind of enigmatic teachings, Many of his disciples are offended by this, offended by his claim to be from heaven, being greater than Moses, that if you eat my flesh, you'll have eternal life. You can only come to me if my father gives you to me. And so they grumble. This is, this is a hard saying. Well, who can listen to this guy? And these, these were disciples. And I, I know what you're thinking. Christians don't grumble at the teachings of Jesus. Ever, right? We, we, ne we never push back on what the Bible says. We're Christians. We don't do that. But the reality is, is that to truly follow Christ in everything, everything that is in his word, to truly actually do that is, is not easy. To trust something that maybe you don't understand completely, but you still trust in faith, that doesn't come naturally to us. We want to have all the answers. We want to know everything. So to trust this in faith is it's difficult. It's difficult, even for those who profess to be Christians, because Jesus' mouth was filled with hard sayings not just these ones but filled with hard sayings and so faith in christ and his word does not come naturally to us 
And I don't mean to say that like it doesn't come easily, though that's true. I'm saying it actually literally does not come naturally to us. It comes spiritually to us. To truly be able to believe in the hard sayings of Christ, to put your faith in what he says, even when you don't totally see it or understand or see him working in your life, that does not come naturally. It comes spiritually from God. Your faith, church, is not something that comes from you. You, you, don't, you don't dig down deep and, and muster faith out from yourself when you're in that place of despair, that place of loneliness or misery or faithlessness. You're doubting. You don't say, oh, I got to just dig down deep and I just got to pull this faith from outside of me. No, it is a spiritual blessing that comes from heaven from the very hand of God. You don't look inside for faith. You look outside. You don't look inside yourself. You look outside of yourself. When it comes to your faith and following Jesus, don't, don't say, oh, I got this. I got this. Something difficult's coming at you. Something's happening, and then you, know, you or maybe your spouse or a friend says, oh, you got this. No, no, church, you don't. You don't got this. If you got this, then you are operating completely in your own strength, your own ability, your own flesh. But you don't got this. When you say, I got this, that, that's not faith. That is self-strength. That's faith in yourself to got this. But no, you need help, not from yourself. You need help from God. And that's not easy. You have to become dependent on him. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, the night before he died, said to his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You, you want to, you want to got this, but your flesh is weak. It's only by fully taking Jesus into your life completely, ingesting him as if he is bread for everyday life. And that's a hard saying. That's a hard thing. Because we need to be fully broken to believe that. Emptied of any faith or trust in yourself. It's why many actually don't really follow truly Jesus. It's too humbling to actually really follow him and follow his word. Be dependent on his word. It's, it's humbling to do that. We want to hold on a little bit in our own life. And to admit that the flesh, your own self, your own strength, your own morality your own goodness, your own righteousness is of no help at all? That's a little extreme. I mean, I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm pretty good. No, it, it's not an easy place to arrive to to say that my flesh is of no help at all. Joby cannot enter into heaven. And if my thoughts were broadcast for everyone to see, You'd all agree. You cannot enter into heaven on your own. The fle your flesh is of no help at all. And if your thoughts were broadcast on the screen behind me, <laughs> we'd all agree. Your flesh is of no help at all. You don't help your cause. I don't help my cause. You don't help your cause standing before God. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. In myself, nothing good dwells. It doesn't say, I know that in me a little bit of good dwells. 
No, nothing in my flesh, good. There's no, no good. Nothing good dwells. Your whole being, from head to toe, has been corrupted by sin. And so in response to these hard sayings, the difficult call to truly follow Christ and trust alone in Christ, many turn from Jesus. And what's fascinating and also scary is that these are actually disciples. We don't know how many, but many were following him, and they were his disciples. And so friends, I want you to listen carefully. It is not easy to truly actually follow Christ as his disciple. If you do think it's easy, if your life hasn't been adversely affected too much by your faith, I'd like to know which version of Christ and Christianity you're actually following. If your life has just been kind of easygoing, adopting your faith into your life, no big deal. If your Christian faith is as easy and, or simple as just calling yourself a Christian, if it doesn't really have any effect on, on how you live, how you spend your time, what you prioritize, what you depend on for joy, how you choose to respond to life's ups and downs, if it hasn't cost you anything, there's probably something missing from that faith. Something isn't quite right. You're operating probably in your own strength, your own version of Christianity and faith, or if Jesus and your faith is just something in your life to give you a little self-strength, like it's there, but just to kind of give you strength to be, help you become a better person, a better version of you, or to empower you or help you succeed, if that's what your faith is for, then something also is missing. Something's missing. I want to take a little bit of a scenic route from, from John to explore a bit of what we're seeing here in these disciples. We might call Christian rejection, because here we're seeing actual disciples turn from Christ, rejecting Christ, turning from him because of his sayings and what he teaches, what he's calling them to. It's just, it's just, it's just too hard for them, it's too hard to even listen to. We see that Jesus even knew that Judas, Judas, one of the 12 who lived with Jesus and did the work of full-time ministry probably preached a bit, probably cast out some demons. He was never truly actually born again, and that is a scary thought. He lived with Jesus for three years, was discipled personally by Jesus Christ, and was not born again. I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter 7. Verses 15 through 27, three different types of rejections of Christ. And I'm going to kind of call them three different types of fruit. So three stories in consecutive order here from Matthew chapter 7. This is in your notes. You can follow along a little bit. The first type of person here who's rejecting Christ, this is what I call just the self-righteous Christian. And the kind of fruit they're producing is what we could call GMO fruit. Genetically modified organism fruit. It's, it's fruit, it's real fruit, but it's been infused with something else, something human. Something's been added to it. There's some flesh that's part of this, some, some uh, human engineering, self-righteous fruits, religious fruits. So some people, I'll get into the texture, but some people who are followers of Jesus, maybe they're genuinely born again, or maybe they're not. 
they're already pretty confident in their own self-righteousness, their own morality, their own wisdom. They look down their noses at other people who aren't quite as holy, not as religious as them, not as theologically sound. They're morally superior to these people. They always tend to see the tiny little speck in the other person's eye. Oh, hey, you've got some sin issues right there, buddy. Meanwhile, ignoring the big plank in their own eye, they'll strain out, as Jesus says, strain out a little tiny gnat out of their drink. Oh, look at this little gnat. I'm just going to get that little thing out. But meanwhile, over here, swallowing a whole camel, focusing on little itty bits of other people's lives while they themselves have this plank. They're swallowing a camel. They can be so right even with their theology and upright in their own personal morality. They're good people. They're very good people. But they can be condescending, cold-hearted, proud, self-seeking. Great theology, great disciplines, but a cold, empty heart. Knowledge that puffs up, but lacking the love that builds up. Lacking humility. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, if you're getting grapes from thorn bushes, those are some GMO grapes right there, right? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus also says later in Matthew chapter 23, the quintessential description of this type of person are the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Some of these Pharisees, they're good religious people. They're smart. They're the most educated. You're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. You look good on the outside. You look like a great, strong, solid believer, disciple. But you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So some of the hard sayings that this type of disciple turns from, for example, are when Jesus calls us to be a friend to tax collectors and sinners. Dining with sinners? Hanging out with people who are not like us? Who don't love the God I love? Who, who are living in sin? Hanging out with those people? Inviting them into my home? No way. Well, what if people think that I'm one of them? Well, that, that doesn't look good to the outside. That, there's some bad optics there. That doesn't, that doesn't bode well for my reputation. People are going to think that, that I'm, I'm doing things with them. So this person fears what other people think, the outward appearance, praise of man. Or another one, another hard saying, laying their life down, washing other people's feet, esteeming others as greater than themselves. The self-righteous person, that's hard to do. Esteem those people as greater than me? Are you kidding me? Have you seen what they do on the weekends? (laughs) I don't think so. We can't do these kinds of things if we know that we're right. We're the ones that are correct. We, at our house, we we play a lot of wiffle ball. And uh, the boys, sometimes, they think it's the World Series. And it is just wiffle ball. And so sometimes they get in these arguments, they just go back and forth. And one time I was talking with a a boy, just one-on-one. He came a little early for the wiffle ball game. 
you know, to get stretched out, get warmed up. <laughs> and, um, and I was talking, I said, hey, you know, sometimes you guys, you guys argue a lot. He's like, yeah, yeah, it's not very fun. And, and so he starts looking at the speck in the other kid's eye, of course. Well, you know, that kid, this is what he does. I'm like, well, you know, you do that too. But as I'm talking with him, he's saying, what's so hard, because I, I tell them, just let the other guy win the argument. Don't argue, just have fun. What, what, what value is it if you're just going to argue all the time? Just let them win. Let them win the argument. But this kid says, I, I know, coach, but that guy, I don't want to let him win the argument because that just puffs him up and makes him so proud and cocky. It is so hard for us to actually let the other person win because sometimes we think that we're saying, you're right. But that's not what it means. That is hard for us. We want to win the arguments, but church, we should be trying to win hearts and not arguments. Do your non-believing friends, do they like hanging out with you? Do you actually invite them to hang out with you? And if you do, do they enjoy it? Or do they feel a bit judged by you? You look down upon them. Or maybe struggling Christians, people who are living in sin. Or maybe people that aren't living like you. The interesting thing is that Jesus not only tells us to do these things, but he actually did these things for us. He hung out with the tax collectors and sinners, and he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton just because he was with them. People assumed that he was there. But I thank God that he came from heaven, from his place of perfection and holiness, and came down to dine with sinners. I thank God for that. The next group of people here in Matthew, what we might call Jesus fans. You know, a fan is someone who's got the t-shirts, has the pennants, knows a few stats. And the kind of fruit here, I'm going to call this kind of plastic fruit, just fake fruit. These are the kind of people, they're, they're on Team Jesus, rah, rah, rah. They got their bumper stickers, their coffee mugs, their self-help devotionals, the ones that teach you how to be a person of power, how to have your best life now, chicken soup for the Christian soul, make you feel better about yourself, prop you up. They're good people, moral people, who are often trying to be their best. They know a few verses that they quote. They check off some of the religious boxes, but they'll cut out parts of the Bible they don't really necessarily believe in. They don't see the Bible as truly necessary for their life. They don't see it as necessary for daily bread and falling in love with Jesus, depending a lot instead on their feelings and their emotions. The Bible's a nice book with some encouragement during a personal struggle. We might go to it from time to time when we need a little help. But there's little or no real desire to, to know God's Word, much less depend on it. After all, Jesus is my homeboy, the big guy upstairs. He's all grace and all love all the time. And so Jesus really is more of a motivational speaker for this person, more like a cheerleader, our fan, our cheerleader to make us succeed and make much of ourselves, make us feel better, to give us the, the attaboy, for him to say, you got this to us. His, his job, we think, is to, to make much of us and lift us up rather than it being our job to make much of him and lift him up. We believe in him a bit more as a good luck charm or a genie in a bottle. 
Help us have a good, comfortable life and be blessed. I was talking to one of our baseball players, and I asked the boys in a fight club, I said, if you were put on trial for being someone who loves Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And he said, I think I'd be convicted of being a good person, but not someone who loves Jesus. And that's a tough thing to admit, but that kind of admission is, is, is ripe for real change. If we really look at our life and say, I think I'm a pretty good person, but whether or not I, I love Jesus, that might not be me. And again, this is why Jesus says in verse 63 of John, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7 about this person. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? I mean, this is varsity-level Christianity we're talking about. This is like D1-type Christianity. Casting out demons? I've never done that. So these guys have done more than I've ever done in my ministry life. And Jesus says, and I'm going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Paul says about the Jews in Romans chapter 2, no one's a Jew who's merely one on the outside, just outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one who's one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the flesh. His praise is not from man, but from God. You're not a Christian by the things you do on the outside or just declaring, I'm a Christian. No, a Christian is one who is one on the inside, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. So many of these people have a false assurance. They might not be believers, but maybe they're, they're, they're make-believers, thinking that they are, putting on an outward show. Some of the hard sayings that they turn away from is like when Jesus says, take up your cross daily. They say, well, do I really have to do that? Or whoever loses their life will find their life. What do you mean I have to give up things? What about my, my, my binge watching? My, my Sunday mornings? What about my, my me time? And the third person is what we might call the, the no change Christian. The fruit here is just, it's, it's rotten fruit. Matthew chapter 7, continuing, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sands. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew it and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This person builds their life in his own way with no regard to God's ways, Christian in name, but their life doesn't look that way. Their life is built and set on, on sand, something else. And so when the rain comes, they run to other things for comfort, for strength, to be their fortress. They don't run to the rock because their life is built on these other things. Most definitely, these people also have a false assurance. These folks aren't making any kind of, of effort to actually honor or follow Christ building their life on him, they believed that somehow they were given some kind of fire insurance or maybe in this case, uh, flood insurance. Their lives look just like the lives of people around them who don't know Christ. 
they fit in with the world just fine. Nothing in their life makes them any different. And some of the hard sayings that Jesus has for them that they turn from, and I don't actually mean this to be funny or condescending, but it's just, it's all of them. All of the words of Christ, just too hard. Just doing their own thing instead. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have, as actual believers, we don't have our doubts, our discouragements, our times of slipping into some of these categories, producing these kinds of fruits. As I look at this, actually the order they're found in Matthew, I think they actually are the, the order that are, I'm most prone to. I'm, I'm most prone to self-righteous type fruit, GMO fruit, or JMO fruit, Joby modified organism fruit. Uh, I'm most prone to that. Working in my own strength, working in my own ability. Now getting back into John, these disciples turned from him. It was too hard to follow Jesus' words. Maybe it was self-righteousness. I don't need this. I don't need to listen to this. I don't need this guy. I'm good enough. Or maybe it's just they were just fans of Jesus. He just provided them some food, some bread, some fish. They're like, rah, rah, let's go, Jesus, give us some more. Or maybe they were just fruitless, rotten fruit like Judas, and just turned. So Jesus then looks at the remaining 12. It says in verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? How about you guys? You guys want to leave me? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, where else should we go? What else are we going to do? Jesus says, you want to go to, where else should we go? Who who else should I pursue? What other real choice do I have? What other real options do I have? You have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? It it is, it's scary to think about truly actually following Jesus, giving up things in your life that are not worth chasing, laying down your life and your rights to serve Christ and the world that he has called you to. It's foreign to think about how to actually feast upon Jesus and his word to have true life. And forsake all these lesser things that don't give us life. But what other choice do we have, church? Where else are we going to go? If you truly believe and have come to know that Jesus truly is the Holy One of God, why on earth are you messing around with other things? Why do we hold on to those things, letting those things shape us and form us? Why are we wasting time trying to live in our own strength, our own wisdom, and our own ability? Why do we keep doing this? I've shared the last few months have been challenging. I've shared this a couple times in the last couple months. They've been saddening for me. They've been discouraging. They've been disappointing more than a, a lot of months that I remember. Monday, I was doing a, a fight club with one of my ballplayers who's going through some tough stuff in his life. And I was sharing with him some of my weaknesses. I told him about a time when my weaknesses were working overtime in my life, tempting me to turn away from following Christ and what I knew he wanted me to do as a disciple. I wanted to go the other way. What he was calling to me was too hard. The hard sayings in my life were feeding on the insecurities and fear and my desire to turn the other way. And the time I was talking about was when we were leading up to planting this church about eight years ago. And so I went home from that fight club and I found myself kind of looking through old journals, reminding me of the things I wrote, the things that went on. 
And in it was just a lot of stuff that I wrote down reminding me of what God has called me to, that he has called me to this, what he taught me to keep me from going the other way. And as I was reading this, I was being reminded of some of the things I shared with you eight years ago before we planted and during our planting. Some of these things bear repeating today because it's just as true today as it was eight years ago. Some of the things I remember telling you guys, and I wrote this stuff down. I told you, I don't have what it takes to lead a church. I don't have what it takes. I don't got this. A lot of times, I don't think I know what I'm doing. I know that I, know that I am not the poster child for a church planter, a lead pastor. I'm not a type A personality. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not a go-getter. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not this outgoing, gregarious person. I'm an introvert. Don't like being in big groups a lot of times. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm being called to this eight years ago. I'm going, Lord, you've got the wrong Joby. I don't know what to do. I do not have what it takes. But I remember, church, thinking to myself, you, church, you don't need a perfect pastor. You've already got one. We've already got a perfect good shepherd. So you don't, you don't need me to be perfect. You've already got a good shepherd who never fails you. You need a pastor instead, a human pastor, who's dependent on Jesus and his word. You, you need a pastor who doesn't have it all together. I remember thinking to myself even that my, my wife doesn't need a perfect husband. She's got a perfect bridegroom in Jesus. My kids don't need a perfect father. They have a perfect father in heaven. My friends don't need a perfect friend. They've got the perfect friend, the friend of tax collectors and sinners. I don't need to be that. I can actually be weak and broken and not have it all together. That's okay because I'm human. My kids, my wife, my friends, our church, we, we need each other to be examples of people who are broken before God. You don't need a pastor who has it all together. You need a pastor who's qualified by Scripture and called, obviously, those things, but still a pastor who is weak, who's broken, who knows that he's one of the foolish things of the world, who knows that many people see him as a, a joke. Even, even he himself sees himself as a joke. But to one, one who by God's grace in his weakness, in his fear, in his depression, in his lack of talent, and his failures, he looks to Jesus and says, to whom else should I go? Church, I've learned to boast in my weaknesses because they cause me to cling to Christ, to run to him and hide myself in him as my strong tower, as my fortress. But I still feel the pressure from myself and from others, from social media, to, to be better, and you can wish that I was better or wish I was different. You can get in line and you can get in line behind me because I want that too. But under that weight, it is easy for me to want to give in, to just give up and to say, I can't take it anymore. I don't have what it takes. But that's the point. That's the point. To give up on my own strength and give in to depending on God. Not trying to dig deep and saying, oh, I got this, but to cry out to God, whom else should I go? That's what I've got to do. 
And I think Peter here is seeing these other disciples leave and realizing he's in over his head. These are hard sayings. These are hard sayings. And he does not have what it takes to follow Jesus. And yet he's still concluded, but where else should I go? He's got the words of eternal life. And for you, it might not be planting a church, but what is it in your life that you're tempted to turn from Christ and do things your own way in your own strength to reject his hard sayings and do things on your own? Is it raising kids, raising teens, overcoming sin or addictions, letting go of certain idolatries, loving your spouse when you don't feel like loving your spouse, disciplining yourself to be in God's word daily, truly committing to your church family, not just on Sundays, but even in the middle of the week? Studying the Bible, praying with friends and family, changing your entertainment, your hobbies, whatever it is. The spirit in you is willing, but your flesh is weak. You don't got this. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Who else are you going to run to? What other option is better? There's none. Jesus has the words to eternal life. And like Peter, I have to make my resolve to lay my life down for the sake of Christ because he alone has the words to eternal life. Everything else is full of empty campaign promises. Everything else. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Church, you've got to be doing the work of killing whatever is killing your love of Jesus. Kill whatever is robbing you of your love for Jesus. Ask yourself, what is it in my life that is taking away my love for God? What is it? We've all got something. We've all got something. And what good reason do you have for not doing away with that thing? Why would you turn from Christ instead of turning from that thing who's robbing your love of Christ? Why is that thing worth holding on to? If you've seen and believed that Jesus alone has the words for eternal life, then why are you turning to those things? Are you going to truly follow him in everything you do? Or are you going to go the other way with your own GMO fruit? Or just continue being a casual Jesus fan? or just by doing your own thing and totally disregarding. That's why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet that test. So I'll close with this here. Since the flesh is of no help at all to change this about ourselves, we're not finding faith deep down inside. We've got to go somewhere else. If you're lacking faith today, if you're walking your own strength, if you're just a casual fan, you're going, I don't know how to change, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right here. And see, Peter already said it. Jesus has the words to eternal life. We have to go to Jesus and his word. We don't go inside ourselves. We go outside of ourselves to Jesus and his word. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Here's where you get faith. Not from a here. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You want faith? You've got to hear the word of Christ. You've got to feast on the bread of life. You've got to be in God's word. 
First Peter chapter 1, verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. God's word is what causes you to become born again. God's word is what gives you life. Hebrews chapter 4 says the word of God is living and active. It's alive. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, all of God's word is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training you in righteousness, for changing you, so that, and here's why, so that the man of God, so that you, believer, can be complete and equipped for every good work. You want change in your life? It's through God's word. And Jesus said the night before he died, John 17, 17, says to his father in his prayer, Father, sanctify them, change them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is where our faith comes from. If you don't know God's word, not spending time in God's word, you can't expect to be growing in faith. You can't expect to be walking in faith. You're going to be walking in that GMO fruit or that Jesus fan plastic fruit, but you won't be walking in real, actual spiritual fruit because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. Faith is a spiritual gift, not a natural thing that pops up in your life because you're so awesome. And you're digging so deep. Church, you can't know Jesus without knowing his word. You can't love him if you don't love his word. You can't follow him if you don't follow his word. If you're not depending on him as your daily bread, then you can't expect to be having this true spiritual fruit growing out of your life. So I want to pray now and ask the Lord to help us to, that, these, that these words, these words of Jesus, there's a lot of them we saw today, a lot of hard sayings from Jesus. But these wouldn't deter us and cause us to turn away. But we would reply and respond as Peter did, say, you know, this is hard stuff. This is, easy. This is, this is not easy. This is challenging. I've got to humble myself, be broken, be weak, admit my weaknesses, be dependent. But, but where else am I going to go? I want to pray that this would be our response this morning. Father in heaven, we, we come to you, Lord, rejoicing in the fact that you have given us your word. You've given us the words to eternal life. You've given us the way for us to be born again, to be sanctified, to be changed. And that this is not of ourselves. It's not something we just have to muster up and try to work harder for, to try to produce our own fruit, but it's something that you give us. And we ask, God, that you'd give us the humility, the brokenness, that we would come to you with open hands, emptied, not clinging on to our own righteousness, our own deeds, our own wisdom, our own intellect, we would come to you as children, needy, dependent, unable to provide for ourselves. We want to have hearts that just desire your word, desire to feast off of the bread of life so that we can have faith and trust in you and not in ourselves. Help us, Lord, to do these things.
to surrender ourselves to you, to produce fruit, spiritual fruit that honors you and glorifies you. Help us to say, as Peter did, that we look to you and say, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You're the Holy One. We thank you, Lord. Work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.